This is the Life Church Podcast. For more messages, to watch our live stream, or to find other events, go to lifechurchnow.org. We're glad you're here, online audience. We're so glad that you're joining in with us. Uh, we're in this series, uh, As You Go. In fact, we're ending the series, As You Go. And uh, we've been talking about being a witness and what does it look like to be a witness. And so that comes from this idea that Jesus has commanded us to go and preach the gospel to all, all of creation. We have been, we've been commanded to do that. This is not a command that's reserved just for pastors or for, or for missionaries or if you have an ordination or a credential of some sort. This is a mandate. This is a command to every person who says, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So if you confess Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Lord has tapped you on the show and said, hey, I want you to be talking about me. I want you to be living a life that reflects my values and my teachings and the, the kind of life that I lived. I'm inviting you to do that. All of us have been invited on that journey. So in this series, we've been talking a lot about that. One of our verses that's been kind of a launch pad verse that uh, we've been using throughout the series is is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Um, the Apostle Peter has been talking to some very persecuted Christians. And so this is what he says, and it kind of goes along the lines of what we've been talking about. He says in uh, verse 15, he says, always be prepared to give an answer. And that word answer in the Greek is actually the word apologia. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, where we get apologetics from. It's being able to, to actually defend your faith, essentially, to, to give a defense. Not argument, a defense, right? He says, always be, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason or an explanation for the hope that you have. Now, here's what Peter's not saying. Peter's not saying you need to be ready to defend a Christian worldview. That's too complicated. You start talking about a Christian worldview, we have in this room, we probably have a dozen different Christian worldviews floating around. And that's just in America. Imagine going to another country like Bangladesh where we lived. There's Christians over there and they also have a worldview. And their worldview very differently from, from ours. So Peter's not saying, hey, be ready to defend your Christian worldview. He's not saying we need to be ready and prepared to defend every Old Testament narrative. That would be a little bit difficult for us because there's so much nuance, culture, and time and all of that stuff. He's definitely not saying you need to be prepared to defend every bad decision a Christian has made throughout history. Which oftentimes comes up in those conversations, don't they? Well, yeah, I know this pastor, I know this Christian, so-called Christian that did this or did that. And then you have to try to figure out why they, you have to try to convince the other person why they shouldn't have done that or why they did do that, why it was right that they did that. That's not what Peter's talking about here. Peter's very narrow, narrowly focusing on one area. He's talking about be prepared, be prepared to talk about your hope, your faith in Christ, why you gave your life to Jesus. And this can be difficult because the truth is not everybody's knocking at your door and saying, hey, can you explain your, your faith to me? How many of you recently, this week had that happen? Anybody come up to you and say, hey, can you explain your faith to me? It's like it's an unbeliever. It doesn't happen. Right? We, we oftentimes are limited to very narrow windows of conversation. And so because we have a very narrow window of conversation, we have to be prepared to give very much a, a, a concise answer that's uplifting and it's not argumentative and it actually, actually draws the person closer. And this is really what we've been talking about over the last uh, several weeks. Today I want to focus in on 
somewhat of a very difficult subject. In fact, I'm just going to tell you up front and apologize to you up front if you leave here this morning and say, man, I wish, I, I wish Rich could talk a little bit more about that or I wish, I wish Rich could have explained that better because I'm take, taking on a very big subject. It's the, the problem of pain and suffering, which oftentimes is an issue in the world that we live in when it comes to why people, you know, kind of stiff arm God. In fact, it's one of the most powerful ways that basically shuts a Christian up from their witness when they say, well, if God is so good, then why does he allow all of this pain and suffering in the world? And most of us are like, okay, I'll see you later. I'll talk to you. We're gone because we don't want to engage that conversation. We don't know how to explain that. We don't know how to talk about that oftentimes. And so we're, we're going to be talking about that, right? But before we jump into that, we need to know who this message is not for. Look, if you're here today and, and you're sincerely wrestling with some suffering, some pain, something bad's happened to you, and in fact, you're at a place where you're having a hard time maintaining your faith in God, um, today's message really isn't about trying to resolve that. It, it'll help a little bit, but it's really not trying to resolve that issue. Um, and if that's where you are, actually, there's a book that I read years ago. It's, I have a, a picture of it up here. It's, it's called Don't Waste Your Sor- Sorrows by Paul Bilheimer. Um, I read it years ago, and it really helped me to gain perspective. When bad things happen, how do we maintain our faith? You know, when, when we suffer, how do we maintain our faith? When, when you know, somebody dies accidentally and you, what's not expected, how do we maintain our faith? And I think that would be really helpful for you if you read that book. I know, I know this is still not satisfactory. It's not like, oh, now I read that book. Now I don't feel suffer. I don't, I'm not suffering anymore. I don't feel any pain anymore. I'm okay now. I know that doesn't help you, us emotionally necessarily, but it would help us at least understand and have perspective of what happens in our life when we do suffer and how we can maintain faith in God. Really, today's message is more for those of us who run into people who, who kind of like have this one-liner that says something to the effect of, hey, you know why I don't believe in God? Well, I don't believe God is good because look at all the pain and suffering in the world. And how do we address that? And maybe you've run into that person, right? The person would come to you and say, hey, yeah, I used to go to church, but you know, I traveled a little bit. I noticed all these terrible things in the world. And man, I just don't know if I could believe in a good God anymore. Today's message is for believers so we can be prepared in those moments, to basically speak to people who kind of have, have created this defense mechanism. It's a way to sort of stiff-arm God or to you know, stiff-arm a Christian or stiff-arm the church to push them away with this, with this idea, this one-liner. I don't believe in God because there's so much pain and suffering in the world. And so what I want to do is I want to help us kind of understand how to have a conversation about that. Right? Now, I'm not, I am honestly saying a conversation about it. I'm not saying a a way to argue with them or have a fight or basically prove your point because that's never helpful. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how do we have a conversation when somebody says, I am having a, and they're sincerely saying, I'm having a difficult time with God being a good God because of all of the pain and suffering in this world. So when you're faced with this idea, here's the thing, you need to understand Pain and suffering in the world is not a reason to put God in the rearview mirror of your life. Okay? Let's just start with that. 
Pain and suffering is not a reason to say, okay, God doesn't exist. I mean, it, it's, in, fa- in fact, it's kind of illogical to just jump to that conclusion from there. Say, so because there's pain and suffering, therefore God does not exist. Well, that doesn't really resolve the problem of pain and suffering. Let's say God did not exist. Does it really solve the, pro- the problem of pain and suffering? So it's kind of illogical to use that language. It's not a reason to put God in the rear view of mirror. So, so if this question surfaces, if you, know, you start having this discussion, here's what I, I would encourage you to, to ask. If you could, ask the person that's talking, talk, if you could, would you basically right now get rid of all pain and suffering in the world? Would you right now get rid of all evil and badness in the world? Would you like step up, if there was like a big red button that said evil eliminator, would you press that evil eliminator and get rid of it all instantly? Would you do that? Right? Some of us would be like, man, I show me the way to the button. I'm going to press that button. But you need to continue this conversation because before you answer that question, you have to, you have to ask another question. But before you press that button, have you ever done anything bad? Have you ever done, have your parents ever done anything evil or wrong? Have your kids ever done anything bad or sinful or evil? I mean, we need to think about this, right? I mean, you're right, evil and suffering and pain and all that stuff, that's a terrible thing and I feel it, but you have to ask yourself the question, have I ever done anything bad? Has my family ever done anything bad? And so... If I could, would I, would I actually basically eliminate it all from the world right now? You see, the problem with that is if if we're honest, is that we would have have to add ourselves to that hit list. Every one of us in this room. Like if there was a button, metaphorically speaking, a button up here that was like, press this button and all evil disappears from the face of the earth. Life Church would be empty instantly if we pressed the button. Because at some level or another, all of us have sinned. All of us have done something bad. All of us have done something evil, right? In fact, if somebody had pushed that button back in the 50s, I wouldn't even be here right now. Because my dad, he was a crooked guy back then. So, there's a reason for us to hesitate to push that button. There really is. Because maybe I haven't quite given up on my friend who's doing evil things. Maybe I haven't quite given up on my son or my daughter who may be doing evil things. So I don't want to do that. And also, I propose to you that God also has a reason to not push the reset button in this world. And that reason is basically you and me. In fact, here's what, here's what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. And there's a promise that the And remember that Peter's talking to a very persecuted church. They've been arrested. They've been been maligned. They've been spoken against. They're, They're suffering. They legitimately are suffering. And Peter says these words to him. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. In other words, hey, you suffering church, there's a promise. God has a promise for you. That these this pain, this suffering, this evil that's happening to you will not be forever. And God's not slow in keeping that promise. He is going to keep that promise, right? He goes on. The Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient. In other words, he knows. You think God's unaware of the evil and suffering in this world? Do you think that 
we're the ones that kind of inform God, God, hey, by the way, you know, all those starving kids in, in Somalia, why are you letting, it's not like God woke up one morning, it's like, man, I didn't even know that. Thanks for letting me know, Rich, that there are starving kids in Somalia. God is very aware. He knows exactly what is happening around this world. But he's patient. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And here Peter basically is revealing the heart of God for humanity, right? So if you question the goodness of God, it's probably because you have this assumption that if God is good, then he should basically cancel out all evil and all sin in this world. But remember, if he does that, that includes you and me oftentimes, right? So, you need to be aware that God is not unaware of these horrible things that are happening in this world. He's not unaware of the young girl who has been imprisoned in sexual slavery in Mumbai, India. Or that parent who's suffering through pain because a drunk driver took his daughter away. He's not unaware of that. He's very aware of that. But he hesitates to push the button because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want any one of us to perish. That includes your children. That includes your father, your mother, your cousins, your brothers, your sisters, your neighbor, your coworkers. He doesn't want anyone to perish. And it's what drives us as a church because we feel that same spirit that God has. He doesn't want anyone to perish. So we know that God hesitates to get rid of all evil in this world. We know that, right? He feels it. He hates it. But he's not willing that anyone should perish. You know what I think? I think actually what we want is, I've used this can before. How many of you guys remember my can, my spray can? Nobody. That's great. Yeah, it was either a very, it was either, a, it was just either you're new or just it was unimpressive sermon or something back then. <clears throat> This right here, I'm holding my hands, Rich's Can of Justice. Okay, Rich's Can of Justice. Now, I was going to name it, I, we had a conversation, Jairus and I were having a conversation about Rich's Can of Whoopa, uh, and then I, I decided not to do that, because I might get in trouble if I did that. But so, uh, Rich's Can of Justice. And see, here's what I think. I think all of us want one of these, right? Like, like if there's... Somebody mistreating a child, we want to just spray them and get rid of them. It's not a very good sprayer here, by the way. Where's Jacob? <laughs> Jacob bought this. Poor Jacob. Um, yeah, right? So somebody's mistreating a child, we want to spray them out of here. We all want this can, right? Oh, you're a Republican? Yeah, or okay, let me be inclusive. You're a Democrat? We'll spray you, you know, get rid of you. That's what we want. And here's the thing. We want it. It's, 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 I've got this can. It says, Rich's can of justice. It means it's how I see the injustices in this world. Through my eyes, I look at the, all the injustices in this world, and I identify what's right and what's wrong, and I'm going to spray it out of here. You smell that hairspray, by the way? <laughs> it was the last richest can of justice that I had was actually... Like a cinnamon smell, good, but the cans are too small. But anyways, so that's what we want. We want to have one of these cans. You're mistreating children, we're going to spray you. You're trafficking people in India, I'm going to spray you. Sorry, poor guy, it's up front, bro. <laughs> Let's spray this way. 
<laughs> but here's the thing. I want to hold this can. I want this can to be in my hands, not in yours, because if it's in your hands, you might spray me. Because you might see something that I'm doing, or you might see something that I have done, and you might think, that was wrong, that's evil, let's get rid of him. So I want to hold the can. I don't want you to hold the can, because you might, you might exact your justice on me, and I don't really want that. And that's the dilemma that we're in. We're in this dilemma where, where we want justice to be eliminated, but it's the way we see it. So on this issue of justice and evil and how, how we deal with it, there's two main assumptions that we have to understand. The first assumption is this, that certain things ought not to be, right? There are things in this world that should not happen. They should not. It's just flat out wrong. It should not happen, Right? And we know that. We know what is right and wrong oftentimes. The reason we know that is because it's, and it's not really, you don't have to be a Christian to know it. You just have to be a human being to know it, right? You don't, you don't have to go to school to learn that murder is wrong. You don't have to go to school to know that enslaving another person is wrong. You don't have to go to school to learn that, that a, a Syrian baby washing up on the shore, that's just plain wrong. That's evil. That's inju- unjust. That should not happen. There are certain things that ought not to happen. And we know that, right? As humans, we have this sense of right and wrong. We know this instinctively. And as Christians, we understand this to be basically the fingerprint of God on our lives. Because he's the moral lawgiver. He's written that on our hearts. We know that is true. Again, you don't have to be a Christian to know that. You just know it's true. Because it's on your heart. So the first assumption is this, that certain things ought not to be. The second assumption is that we live in a very broken world, <clears throat> right? Not just human beings are broken. We are, but I'm not just talking about human beings. It's why there's tsunamis and earthquakes. It's why there's, you know, tornadoes and cancer and brain tumors. And I could go on and on and on of the brokenness of this world. This entire world is broken, and it's just not right that innocent people suffer. It's just not right that a, 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 an Indonesian just going about his business during the day gets swept away in a tsunami. That's just not right. But it is true. This is what you need to know. The world is broken. And Christians have always believed this. Since the time of Christ, we've believed this. We believe that this world is broken. We believed because this world is broken that this is not our final home. This is not the, the, the end destination for us, that we're really passing through. And that's really what Peter is talking about. He said, as you're passing through this world, this is how you should live. We understand that this is not the end game for us. The world is broken. It's broken because of the power of sin over this world. When Adam and Eve sinned, sin entered the world and it affected everything, not just human beings. It affected the world itself. It's sin why there's tsunamis that take hundreds of thousands of Indonesians. It is sin why evil governments will just do terrible things and create humanitarian crisis in Yemen and and Syria. It's because of the power of sin. So the question for us then is how do we live in this world? That's what Peter really is answering throughout throughout his epistles in 1 and 2 Peter. How do we live in a world that's so broken? 
And this is really where the teachings of Christ really come in, especially the teachings regarding the kingdom of God is so important. This is not our final destination. This is not the end game. We're passing through. So in light of that, in light of the fact that the, the, the best possible world that we can have is a world where, where you are free to sin, you are f- free to do evil, you are free to do evil, but you willingly choose not to. That's the best possible world that we can have right now as strangers in this world, as we're passing through. A couple years ago, my, my granddaughter, Ellis, she came to my house and... Um, and so we have a fireplace in our living room that's the gas fireplace with the glass, you know, over the top. And uh, she came into the living room and she saw the fireplace and she just, without hesitation, just walked up and put her hand on the glass of the fireplace. It had been on. And so she shrieked, she burnt her hand, you know, and man, you know, being the pops that I am, I was like, I punished her. I told her, you cannot come to my house for the next 18 years. That's right. And when you learn how to read and write, you're going to write down a hundred times, I will not touch Pops' glass of his fireplace. Right? That's what I did. What do you think about that? (laughs) That's not what I did, actually. (laughs) You know that. You know that's not true. It's a lie. But I didn't have to, right? A couple weeks later, she came back to our house, and it was funny. She's walking in the door, and the fireplace was on again. And she's just kind of like walking, and she looked to her left and saw the fire of the fireplace, and she jumped back, and she went, hot, hot. She learned something, right? She made a choice. And I know this is kind of a simple illustration, but we, we live in a very broken world where evil and suffering are a reality. It happens, it's there, and they're the consequences of sin. But we also have a choice, We have a choice in this world to make righteous choices, to make choices not to sin, to make choices not to touch the glass. We have those choices. The Apostle Paul tells a little bit about this in in, in Romans chapter 8. Actually, I don't have enough time. Again, this sermon is, I'm frustrated with it. But anyways, in chapter chapter 8, Paul is talking a little bit about this. He says, for the creation waits in eager expectation, in future tense form here. He says creation, not just humankind. Creation is waiting. All of creation has been affected and all of creation is waiting. Creation waits in eager, anticipa- in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That there's something that's going to happen. Something is going to be revealed. That we're not, this is not our final form. This is not the end game. You see, when humans sinned, everything fell under the curse of sin. And it wasn't fair but it's true. Like you might be sitting here right now and say, well, wait a minute, why, why, why am I born with sin? What's the problem? I didn't do it. I didn't ask for it, but you know, it's true. And you may want to reject that truth, but some of you here, for example, you, you've suffered because of choices your parents made, right? It's not fair, but it's true. Some of you, some of you have a, a, you're kind of predisposed to certain illnesses because of who you're related to. It's not fair, but it's true. Christians have always believed that when sin entered the world, the entire world was affected. Now this world is in decay. 
This world is waiting for a better world to come. So basically what Paul is telling us is that this world is broken. Now I realize that this is not an emotionally satisfying answer. That basically I kind of built the anticipation up saying, hey, we're going to talk about pain and suffering, and here's my answer to you. Pain and suffering is a reality. How emotionally satisfying is that? I mean, you really wanted to hear the magic words of, hey, just believe this way and all pain and suffering just disappears. But pain and suffering is a reality. The question is, how do we live in a world like that? God is very aware of the pain and suffering. And like I said, because pain and suffering is a reality, it's not a reason to put God in the rearview mirror of your life, Right? I get it. I get that my answer right now for you doesn't satisfy the brain tumor that you might be experiencing or the loss of a child that you might be experiencing. Um, I have a friend. His name is Samuel Kubier. I have a picture of him up here. There's another picture I wanted to show you, but I couldn't find it, actually. But Samuel Kubier, his name is Samuel Kubier, which is a kind of, in Bengali culture, is a, a weird name because Samuel in Bengali culture would be a Christian name, and Kabir is a Muslim name. So that basically says a little bit about his life. He's a Muslim convert. He's a Muslim who became a Christian. And Samuel, uh, his original name was Azizul Kabir Ahmed. And so he had come to the United States on this rotary exchange program and then conveniently forgot to get back on the airplane to go back to Bangladesh, <laughs> if you know what I mean. He kind of was here illegally for many years. Um, he lived in California. He got involved in the Mexican cartel and gang life and all that kind of stuff and was running drugs between Tijuana and San Francisco until finally he was busted and imprisoned and he spent eight years in Chino, Chino State Penitentiary in, in, in California. And while he was there, uh, you know, he was part of like the Muslim Brotherhood. So he was like leading the Muslim Brotherhood. And then one day somebody had it out for him and they almost killed him. And so they put him in solitary confinement. And so he was in the solitary confinement for a period of time when um, a pastor, Steve Cook was his pastor's name. Steve Cook would come on a regular basis and, and talk to Samuel and try to tell him about faith. And, and eventually Samuel gave his life to Christ. And the way Samuel gave his life to Christ, he opened up his Bible and the first thing he read, the first thing he saw, after he gave his life to Christ, he opened his Bible. The first thing he saw was the book of First Samuel, and he said, that's my name. My name is now Samuel. So he went from AZ or Azizul to Samuel Kabir. He, spent, he did his time at Chino, and, and they handed him $50 as he was leaving, gave him $50, his prison boots, and they escorted him to the airport, put him on an airplane back to Bangladesh. And that's when I met Samuel. Um, we, he showed up at our church, kind of a interesting guy, you know, and got to meet him and got to know him and got to realize, man, this guy loves Jesus and he just wants to serve Christ. And so we got in a closer relationship and over time we, we, we dreamed up this scheme that we're going to start a teen challenge program in Dhaka City. We had come to the conclusion that, man, dr- drugs were rampant especially among, you know, the hundreds of thousands of kids that just abandoned on the streets there. And so we wanted to do something about that. And Samuel, you know, he said, I'm in. in." And our hearts were just breaking over what we would see, the evil, the wickedness, the badness that existed. Kids, six and seven years old, sniffing pain and sniffing glue. Teenagers, you know, smoking heroin. They call it brown sugar there. They're smoking heroin all day long. 
about 90, among those kids that we were working with, about 90% of them were HIV positive. This, all of this stuff, I'm telling you, every bit of this, everything we experienced, everything he saw on a daily basis would have caused anybody to sh- just throw up their hands and say, God, you can't be good. How can you allow this stuff? This is just too much. How can you possibly let this happen? But Samuel wouldn't do that. He would find joy in rescuing one. And that rescue didn't mean that all of the drug problems were gone. It didn't mean that HIV was now gone. He found joy in rescuing this one person. Uh, One day, Samuel and I, the reason I'm talking about Samuel is we went to this young teenager's house that the, the mother had come and told us that he was dying and that we needed to go pray for him. So we went to this, through the slum areas there in Dhaka City and found this teenager's home and he was lying on his bed and we, we believed that he was HIV positive. He was emaciated. And uh, we began praying for him. And, you know, we were believing that God would, could, could, could reverse the consequences of sin in his life, that God could heal him. That's what our belief was. We prayed for him. But I learned something that day when Samuel was praying. Samuel, every time he would pray, he always ended his prayers with this. He prabujishu ashun. He prabujishu ashun. He prabujishu ashun. He would pray for healing. He would pray for a lot of things, but he would always end with he prabujishu ashun. You probably want to know what that means, right? In Bengali, translated means, literally it means, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, Come. And it was part of his prayer because it was something he saw in the Bible in Revelations 22, 20, where it says, he who testifies of those things, to those things, says, yes, I am coming soon. In other words, there's hope built into the coming of Christ. Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In other words, we've done all that we can do. We're going to continue to push back on evil. We're going to continue to push back on the badness in this world. We're going to try to live our lives as light in this world. We're just passing through. And the only thing when pain and suffering is real and it seems like we can't make a difference in it is to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. One day you're going to set things right. One day you're going to make all things right. But until that time, we're going to continue to work. We're going to continue to press forward. We're going to continue to do everything we can to bring justice into this world. Our ultimate hope is in come, Lord Jesus, come. Pain and suffering is not evidence of the absence of God. Pain and suffering is evidence that things aren't right and they ought to be better. And so because of that, how many of you are aware of pain and suffering in this world? Raise your hand. should be all of us, right? Because of that, we're going to do everything we can to push back on pain and suffering. Last night I was at the... Um, Faith Academy banquet here in town and I've known Doug Fern for many years Doug has spoken here at Life Church we've supported Doug when uh, Brian, Brian remembers going down to, to the spot and taking youth down to the spot you know when they were doing the spot now they have Faith Academy there and I was just blown away I saw a, a group of kindergartners most of them African Americans st- standing up there and they quoted the entire 51st Psalm. I saw the entire class get up there and they were just singing songs and, uh, and, and just praising Jesus, really. And they had this ama- amazing confession that they would say, I wish I knew it, I can't, they had it memorized, this confession they would say every single day. 
And it was all about believing in Jesus Christ and knowing that there is a future for them. And that they're going to obey God and they're going to live. This is, this is the cool thing. They're going to live in this world as his servants doing everything they can to do it righteously. I was just blown away. I was talking to, uh, to uh, Sheldon. It's Min- Misty Mites, Miss, Missy Mites' uh, father. He was sitting next to me and we were talking about, uh, about this. And he, he made the comment. He said, isn't this amazing? Isn't this powerful watching all those kids up there, you know, singing songs and knowing that most of them had come from, you know, underserved families. Most of them, uh, you know, their future was dictated by a potential drug addiction and, and loss and who knows what. And he said, isn't this amazing? And I said, yes, but you know what's going to be even more amazing? 30 years from now. 30 years from now, when those kids are doctors and engineers and doing whatever they're doing for God, that they can look back to a moment in time when said, somebody recognized that there's evil and badness in this world and they didn't just stand back and say, God, you don't exist, or just wring their hands and walk away. They said, we're going to do something about it. We're going to step in. We're going to push. We're going to make sure that justice prevails in this world. And that's really what God is calling us to do. And that's really an answer that you can give when somebody says, I don't believe in God because look at all the evil and suffering in the world. Man, let's all stand. 